welcome to Not Safe for Publication, a podcast about the lighter side of humanities research. My name is Anna. And I'm Georgia. And with us today, we've got Jess, uh, who is our second guest joining us from sociology. This month in February, we're focusing on researchers who are looking into uh, LGBT issues. Jess, welcome. Thank you. Happy to be here to have you join us today. Do you think you could uh, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you came to be in Manchester? Yeah, I'm so yeah, my name's Jess. I'm a third year sociology PhD student. I'm, I'm basically, I'm, I'm from New York. I went and did my undergrad in um, Ithaca College in upstate New York. I got a BA in anthropology and a BA in um, art history. And I liked Ithaca so much, I didn't want to leave. So instead of doing anything with my degree once I graduate, I lived there for like maybe a year, bartending and um, working at like a clothing shop and stuff like that. But then I realized I kind of wanted to like finally do something with my degree, not sure what. Oh, I'll start education. I wasn't really like as happy in Ithaca as I probably wanted to be. So I was like, oh, I'll just move to England and see how that works. So then I came here to do my master's. (laughs) It was supposed to be like a one year bit, but I ended up liking Manchester so much that I stayed and applied for my PhD. My master's with, was in um, social anthropology and I ended up looking at kind of how, you know, so like in the lesbian world and the community, there's different categories. So you have like butch, femme, boyish, tomboy, lipstick, all these different names. When I went out to Canal Street, I kind of noticed that like, not like-minded, like similar looking people, like butch people hung out with butch people and femme people hung out with femme looking people. And I was wondering if this impacts how you socialize in the queer community and and what does it do? I found out it doesn't do much, actually. It doesn't really matter what you look like. What people talked about was, it's not about how we dress, it's more about like, there's no spaces for people to come together and have like this collective visibility where everyone feels included. So people kind of are often segregated and don't feel like there's a lot of visibility for lesbians in Manchester due to the lack of space. So I was like, okay, cool. So I started doing I wanted to do a PhD on that and continue it. So I wanted to do my PhD in Manchester and I was trying to do it in anthropology, but um, basically my supervisors in sociology just seemed more appropriate. Um, And they had like more connecting ideas to what what I was trying to do, I guess. So I um, applied for sociology. I got in three years later, here I am. You're our first guest who's in their third year, so it's going to be interesting to kind of hear about what the last two years have been like, I suppose. It's not too depressing. (laughs) (laughs) By the way, you just crumble. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think it will be at least interesting to hear about what what you've kind of learned along the way, I suppose. But maybe we could start by finding out more about your research. You've obviously given us a bit of an introduction into how you got into it, but... Tell us about your project. Okay, so my project, I want to change the title, is something to do, but it's called Sapphic Space Scarcity. So Sapphic as in lesbian, Sapphism as in lesbianism, um, and just basically looking why there's so few lesbian identified spaces is my main question. Um, And essentially the research shows that, well, gay men are out on the scene more because they have more money, they like to be out in public more, and they're kind of just like more identifiable, whereas lesbian women like to like stay home with their cats and their partner and like not leave and we're all really poor or, you know, something like this. Um, And I just looked at it and I was like, don't you see how this kind of like gender role dynamic is happening in the community, but no one's really questioning it. No one's being like, 
oh, or maybe there's bigger so, uh, social factors happening. So kind of like this idea of like um, power dynamics and gender regime uh, regimes. So that's why I'm looking into, but it goes more to just gender, I guess. So if you're looking at Canal Street, there's a particular t- kind of person that really accesses it. Most people identify it as cis, white, middle-class, young gay men. But there's also cis, white, middle-class, young lesbians actively engaging in Canal Street. So you start questioning things about not just these different gender dynamics, but also sexuality and uh, ethnicity and age. And how do these factors make Canal Street more or less accessible? Mm. Um, And one thing I'm looking into currently is how Basically, Canal Street is not very accessible for a lot of people who identify as LGBTQIA+. Right? So what uh, the women I've been talking to have done have created alternative spaces. So there's Shit Lesbian Disco that happens annually at this point, like during Pride. Um, and that's the only woman-only space, so uh, men are not allowed to be there. So if you identify as a woman in any shape or form, you're more than welcome to come. Um, and then I volunteered in the Her events. So Her... I don't know if you guys know, it's um, it's a social app for queer women. So there's two points to it. One is like, kind of like, t- like you can swipe and like people and it's for dating. The other is, is like Facebook, so you can put up statuses and there's friendship communities and stuff like this. And then you have like a board with, you know, your profile and everything. So they started putting on events in major cities with queer hubs. So Manchester became one of those. So I joined the team and did like four events with them, which ha- they were amazing. And, you know, you really sort of like, women coming together and the feedback was generally really positive and welcoming. It was like finally like a really friendly atmosphere for women to be in. Um, There's a bit of a stereotype of vanilla, um, which is the only lesbian bar in Canal Street, of being exclusionary and there's certain cliques and judgmental. That's how a lot of people um, explain it. Yeah, 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 see the nods. Um, So yeah, so I started looking into that and writing a bit about um, the success of these alternative events as creating inclusion but um, essentially there's a tension because, again, my main focus is about visibility. And although these alternative spaces are creating um, positive spaces for women, essentially the scene, the commercialized scene, is the most highly visible place for LGBTQ people. So you're not really gaining that kind of visibility still, although you're gaining a sense of belonging. That sense of belonging is limited because since they're alternative, they have kind of underground characteristics. You have to be in the know and you have to seek them properly find these spaces so that kind of limits the accessibility for some of the people I talk to. That's really interesting to me as I've done a little bit of so I'm a historian but I've done a little okay. bit of work on subculture around the physical space gotcha. for subculture so that was the question that was kind of going around my mind when you were speaking just then is I was thinking about vanilla yeah uh, and the the very literal space of vanilla it's minuscule yeah it is the smallest nightclub i have ever been inside so tiny it is shoebox size (laughs) and it is also very clicky but i was thinking about actually how the physical space functions for visibility when you've got you know the the gay village now is really it's a whole quarter it's several joined up streets that are mainly about uh cis white male uh gay expression and then you just have this one very small physical space that is about yeah. <laughs> cis white female gay expression yeah so yeah has that been sort of a part of your research dealing with the actual the location yeah it well i i noticed the location it's literally off of canal street like behind it almost on richmond street right and so 
the physical aspect of it is interesting. A lot of people comment on how small it is of a space. And that goes, there's different types of accessibility, right? So social accessibility, um, but also just like physical and mental accessibility to these spaces. So a lot of people I know who struggle with stairs, who don't, who can't do stairs, they they can't go to vanilla because the only bathroom they know of is upstairs. Also, they have seating downstairs, but later in the night, they remove it for a dance floor. So it's more limited downstairs, so you would have to go upstairs to a couple of booths and stuff like that. So the actual, and the smallness of the space actually is um, limiting for people who are anxious and don't like a club scene. So it's very small, it's very loud, it's very dark, it's very clubby, which is good for some people, good for some nights, but people are really looking for like a cafe. They really want like Mm. a cafe bar kind of atmosphere that's just not really provided on Canal Street. I guess number one opened up and that that provides like a restaurant, cafe, bar kind of experience, but they wanted one that was more uh, woman orientated. Mm -hmm. I didn't feel like that really did the justice that they were looking for, I guess, yeah. I was just wondering because, um, and this might be a very stupid question, but speaking of language, Mm because it's also one of the ways in which we kind of think about community. What's lesbian and gay when referring to a person who identifies as a heterosexual female, what would be kind of the differences in kind of presentation of a bar or in a space? Right, okay. Wait, okay, let me see if I understand the question. In terms of lesbian and gay, like gay men and lesbian women in the presentation of a space for those? Well, because word gay can sometimes be used to describe a homosexual woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Then... What makes a space yeah. a lesbian space as rather opposed to like just a, a gay, gay space. space? Yeah, okay, okay, I got it. Uh, so, first of all, I use the term lesbian because of my research. A lot of women that I talk to put lesbian slash gay or prefer the term gay woman. There's a negative connotation with lesbian that some people don't just like the word and it doesn't seem to fit their identity, whereas gay just seems to work for them more. In terms of what makes it a lesbian space as opposed to a gay space, it's just the more woman-focused and woman-centered. So the marketing and the promotion and the advertising and maybe like the the morals of the space and the reason for it to be produced is more of this woman-focused, centered, welcoming space for women in, in, a, in a community that's very male-dominated. Mm-hmm. So a safe space to express that kind of sexuality and identity and although it so vanilla is a lesbian identifying bar i'm pretty sure but th- their quote is like where the women are or where the women are at mm. or something like that it's where the girls are also. where the girls are that's it um so it's about like it's it's not just lesbian it's about like lgbtq women which has been interesting because i was particularly focusing on lesbian but it it covers so many i've, I've talked to women who identify as bisexual because this is a space for women that are mm. queer that's like the most visible um space does that answer the question is yeah. it yeah yeah i think there's also something about how um there's a bit of an assumption that on canal street a uh, space that's identified as a gay space is sort of technically for men and women there mm-hmm. are male only spaces in the village there are there is one female only yeah. or sort of female centered space yeah. in the village but there are lots of spaces that would present themselves as a place where men and women would go mm-hmm but that are ultimately kind of tailored towards the male experience more yeah. and are more attended more by men sort of used. It's it's to do with gay white men being the visible part of the LGBT community. They access the space more 
And some people are just like, oh, well, that's just because that's what they that's what they do. Like, just like, you know, like grouping them as like a species. Like, oh, they go to that part. But you know what I mean? It's very odd. And it's like, actually, no, you have to think about this a bit more. There's a reason why they find these spaces more accessible than other people. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so like a lot of them are quite gay male dominated, particularly white gay men dominated. Yeah. The, the history of the village goes some way towards explaining that in that it sort of came up at a time when to be a gay man was illegal and it yeah. wasn't illegal for women to be gay. Yeah. So there was a need for a male space that perhaps there wasn't uh, an equal need for at that time, but it has evolved into something that was that is aimed at the broad community, the, the long yeah. acronym community. Yeah, the long acronym community. Yeah, and I think people, like you said, they, they hear, oh, this is a gay bar, everyone's welcome. But in fact, what's happening is everyone is welcome, but there's these certain things that are kind of reinforcing some kind of practices. And going back to your point about the gay village and like, it, you know, so one of the, a couple of the bars have been there before Canal Street became like an actual commercialized space. But there was always a need for lesbian spaces as well and lesbian women trying to find these different spaces. But I think, like you said, because it wasn't illegal. But the reason it wasn't illegal is because it wasn't taken seriously enough. It's a very weird thing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, But then visibly, gay men had to deal with that a bit more because gay, gay women, lesbian women, bisexual, just weren't taken as seriously. And they were just always a bit more underground, mm-hmm. like physically in spaces, but also as an identity. Um, <laughs> than gay men because of Section 28 and, and all this. And I think it's interesting, too, in, in terms of the Canal Street, I, th- I want to say, like, the 80s. Basically, the the council put money into Canal Street to make it this more, like, oh, we're alternative and we're accepting and we're very cosmopolitan. Uh, look, we have a magnificent gay village that, you know, they can have late-night bars, we're going to decrease police brutality um, and really make it an accepting space. Um, but that was also, like kind of this idea of trying to get other people no matter their sexuality to just like find Manchester attractive space to live Mm -hmm. so then you'll see things like the very commercialized sections also having a lot of heterosexual people like particularly Hindus or Mm -hmm. something Mm -hmm. that comes up up a lot accessing these spaces because that's actually what this they were intending to make it like this club atmosphere as someone I read he calls it Madchester instead of Manchester (laughs) um, to kind of create this like club like atmosphere then there is this sort of implicit association then with uh, LGBTQIA culture yeah. and the party lifestyle. Yeah. Like that it's uh, it's kind of a, something that's associated with capitalism, with leisure time, with, with spending your money and your time in a visible way. Yeah, but at the same time, the city has done this in order to appear sort of progressive and inclusive, yeah. but it creates an area where that is acceptable yeah it's a, a little section of the city where all of the gay activity is supposedly happening and so that you know it makes it separate from the city rather than a, a true inclusion yeah um also i was kind of thinking of the ways in which this commercialization and you know making it more tourist mm-hmm. and attractive from this perspective is influencing the community that it supposedly exists for and the ways in which this community then perceives it because yeah. if we see it as this kind of so almost a subculture and a group where there is a certain criteria for participation then for them the fact that a lot of outsiders are going in how does this affect them 
But some people just have flat out told me they do not want Hindus and like straight people in Canal Street because they've had so many negative experiences of going there as a single person and trying to talk to a woman and then someone being, what are you doing with my wife? And like being like like a, a guy being aggressive towards her. Therefore, she no longer uses it because she no longer felt safe. So now the safe space mm-hmm. is no longer safe for her. Some people take funnier approaches. As someone else I talked to expressed that they're out in Canal Street having like a drink, you know, like summertime, it's really nice out, it's warm, I say. And they talk about how some straight people gawk at the gayness and they're like, oh my God, look how homosexual this place is. And they're, you know, like looking around, like whatever. So in order to kind of stake claim that this is a gay space, they just started barking at these people that they assumed were strange just like and then just started barking and then turned away just to kind of like shake them up a bit um so there's like serious ways that people have been feeling unsafe and then other ways that people take it more lightheartedly but it's definitely affected them hindus have come up so many times in my interviews so many people said um you know they they would get rejected from um gay essentially because a hindu just went in and like oh sorry members only they'll see like people who are clearly like out for a Hindu, which, which could, I don't know, it doesn't have to be necessarily um, heterosexual people celebrating it, but then they would just get rejected because GAY says it's a members only and they kind of just decide when it's a members only night. No one really buys that it is. They feel that they get refused at the door because they don't look gay enough or um, mm. they are discriminating. Some people say that they're racist and, you know, things like this. A lot of people have seen that, that I've talked to and if you have experienced it. Is your methodology kind of based on interviewing people? Yeah, so my methods were, well, basically, the research I've done, it's a lot of people saying, we tried to talk to lesbians, but we couldn't find them, so we ended up talking to a lot of gay men. I was like, all right, well, that's an issue number one. Issue number two is, like, we tried to have a diverse sampling of people, but we ended up finding a lot of white people. I'm like, okay, that's that's issue number two. And so I'm like, how do we get, like, a diverse perspective of what it means to be like a lesbian and like dealing with these kind of spaces and visibility and things like that so initially I was like oh I'll just talk to groups that I know so like Rainbow Noir um, and different groups that are for fame individuals and things like that so essentially I emailed Rainbow Noir being like do you think anybody would be interested in talking to me blah 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 and they're like I don't know and like you can't just like come into this space and stuff and that was a learning curve for me and that was me needing to be like oh we need to assess my white privilege right now like you're just assuming that you can talk to these people and access this like support group like that's not okay so then I took a route and said well how do I contact people that I necessarily don't know and I want to be involved in this and I want to hear their voice so I worked with um, someone at the LGBT foundation who helped me come up with a survey so I distributed a survey to as many different places as I possibly can. I distribute it to a church. You put it in their like newsletter, which was great. <laughs> they had like um, uh, image next to it being like, here is this is a survey about lesbian visibility. And next to it says, God loves lesbians, which I was like, this is amazing because for clear reasons that uh, churches are not usually so accepting of homosexuality. So I was like, this is great. And I tried to reach out to everybody. I got about hundred people back. And from that, then in that survey, I asked if you want to do interviews or focus groups. Most people said they wanted to do focus groups. Most people did not show up for the focus group. So I only had one focus group um, of like five people. And then I did about 20 interviews, plus the survey um, and also participant observations. 
in Vanilla and then also in Nip and Tipple. Have you guys been there? Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's quite Chelsea. near where I live. Oh, is it? Okay, cool. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> so different than Vanilla. It's a completely different experience. Um, but yeah, so those were my those were my methods. How did you negotiate doing participant observation in a nightclub? Like what? It was so uncomfortable. Um, <laughs> it was so. I like I, I so I just did a couple at each. So Nip and Tipple, you can go in. I sat on a couch. I had a burger and a pint, and I watched everyone come in and out and they were lovely and welcoming no one looks at you you're just like chilling right you're just like hanging out going to vanilla and first of all it's difficult because you don't know when they're open or closed is the main issue i have gone on a thursday night at nine o'clock and then i was walking you know and i was coming back and i was like oh check it out even later 11 o'clock nothing like they just decided to close even though they're supposed to be open and they just have really odd times so it was hard to pinpoint it because I was trying to do once during the week and once during the weekend. But my first time that I went <laughs> to Vanilla, I went on the weekend and uh, on my own and I sat at the table and I had a beer and I'm just writing my notes and it's a really uncomfortable place to be because if you're not dancing or socializing, you kind of look out of place. But essentially I was there for uh, almost an hour and a girl who looked about 22 just like walked past me, gave me like, a nod look and eyebrows raised, stuck her tongue out at me, and then walked away. And I felt so uncomfortable, I had to leave. I was just like, okay, because I think that was her trying to hit on me. I'm pretty sure that's what, it felt really, really, really uncomfortable. And I just like, basically ran home. So then after that, I was like, right, I'm not going on my own. I, I don't want to experience that again. You know, it's funny, but I just, yeah. Um, so I went again with my partner and I think one or two friends, but essentially a woman who was very, very drunk came over to me and, and hit on me again, even though she said, I know you guys are dating, but, and then proceeded to hit on me. So I just was like, I can't actually be here. <laughs> like, you know, it was just really, it was just a really weird experience because everyone talks about it being like this, people look you up and down when you walk into this room and it's very predatory and judgmental and all this stuff. And that's exactly what I experienced on both of my participant observations. Not to say I've never been there before and I haven't experienced it, but it just so happens the things I documented, that's the experience I'd had. So it was it was quite uncomfortable. Yeah. <laughs> How does note taking in a not in nightclub work is what Your phone. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I just looked like I was really self yeah, like absorbed in like texting. Oh but yeah, I just like on my phone. Yeah. I, I could not like imagine like notepad and like yellow legal pad and just kind of scribbling away yeah. and then you kind of you expect people to behave weirdly around you if you're in a nightclub with a yellow legal pad. Yeah, yeah, totally. No, I just looked like I was texting loads. But actually I didn't think about it till now. I did bring like a notepad and pen to nip and tipple. It just felt more suitable. Like it was totally a normal thing mm-hmm. to do. People be like, Oh, you're just writing or something, you know, it's just a different atmosphere. Yeah. It's um, kind of relaxed. Yeah. I did a piece where I like kind of compared the two and everything about it is like opposite. <laughs> the lighting, the decor, the the people who come in and out, you know, all this stuff. Because Nip and Tipple isn't a lesbian identified bar. It's owned by a lesbian, I'm pretty sure. And it's kind of just has a reputation for being a place that a lot of women like to go to. I did not know that. Oh, and really? I don't, I don't, I, when you've been talking about it, I'm like... I didn't know that bar. I've been there. Yeah. I didn't just didn't know this. I'm like Homer Simpson in that episode of The Simpsons. Oh, <laughs> just <laughs> something like, odd about this bar. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No, it is. But I mean, when you go, when I did the observations, I you know I was kind of curious, so I kind of tried to look at who I thought was there. 
that's another weird thing. I'm like, oh yeah, I'm gonna look about lesbian visibility and all of a sudden I'm judging who's gay and who's not without talking to them and just watching them. Mm-hmm. Felt very conflicted about this. And like assuming gender identities and like, you know. Yeah, that was something I had to, I like told my supervisors, I was like, what what do I do? I don't think this is right. Like that, like mm-hmm. I didn't think about this, but I just wanted to see spaces that people associate as lesbian. I was like, it doesn't feel right though. Just assuming someone has short hair, it's like, maybe they're gay, I don't know. And you know, just doing this but it was pretty much 50 50 in terms of like female and male presenting people one of the things that we do on this podcast you've already given us a a couple of good funny moments but uh we ask our guests if they have something to share with us from their research that's sort of funny or light-hearted so yeah as i shared i had a few things one thing it's not necessarily from my research but something i've realized about myself is that i basically don't have anything that's not lesbian in my life happening right now so in your PhD people are like do another hobby because it helps you like socialize outside of the community and get outside of your head I was like yeah yeah I'll do that and basically my way of having a hobby was joining the her event team so people ask me like uh, you know when you're making social conversation at a party and like oh how's your work going yeah it's good good so what else are you doing and I was like oh not much like do any hobbies I was like well I create parties for lgbtq women i help organize those they're like so you help create lesbian spaces i'm like yeah so i don't have anything else that i'm doing anymore which i find amusing and and like just working like everybody just assumes that when i speak i'm going to talk about lesbian things and so when people ask me like oh what are you studying i just say lesbians (laughs) and then i stop (laughs) and they get a bit uncomfortable because they're not really sure what else to ask (laughs) i just let them like sit with it for a bit instead of explaining but yeah, that was that was my other little bit that I thought was interesting. It's actually an interesting point because it's something that Jamie talked about on oh, really? our last episode, is that because he loves his subject so much, he's ended up doing a lot of stuff to do with it in his spare time. Yeah. And there is this big crossover between your hobby and your job, yeah. which I guess is why it matters so much that you love what you do and yeah. you obviously are very invested in, in the community and in... You're just invested in lesbians. I am, I'm invested, yeah. <laughs> like, everything I do is so gay. Like, my house is gay, but, you know, I'm with my partner, and then I do, like, these, like, kind of queer parties, and I say lesbian visibility, and I just, like, don't have another outlet that I'm doing. I need to take up, like, knitting or something. Knitting is super gay. I'm what? sorry. Is it? <laughs> yes. I cannot win. Is it? <laughs> yeah, I, I, not I know. do not know. Well, there's definitely, there's a big thread of it among younger women who are doing needlecraft like oh well that's um well, that's like third wave feminism now isn't it that's like a thing using like craft to express like feminine your feminist you know ideas yeah. and, and inputs I was, I was learning about that through a course i was teaching on so I've, yeah yeah i've not really engaged with it on any kind of theoretical level but i do needlecraft so like knit and crochet because uh, i've got busy stressed out hands and i like to give them something to do yeah I do feel this very strange connection to, because I learned from my grandmother and she will have learned from her mother and stuff, there's this incredibly long line of women going back who know how to make string into shapes (laughs) and who taught each other. So there's this, I just get very reflective when I'm knitting and I think about like, you know, there's one, there's one thread that I'm working with and then there's this one thread going back through history and it's so like... Yeah, I get very intense about it. I get uh, weepy. <laughs> that's really nice. So, yeah, see, this is what... Basically, I come home after a PhD, you know, at uni, and I sit down and I watch, like, five hours of Netflix. I'm like, I have to do something else. Like, this is not 
it makes me feel restless. It's not good. So I'm like, what can I do? I was like, oh, I'll take up knitting. Oh, I'll do this. I never actually got into it. Mm. Um, I like your definition of knitting, though. <laughs> Making string into shapes. <laughs> That's what knitting is. Well, more or less. Um, I like thinking, like, when you look at a knitted thing, like, this was once just a piece of string. It's true. It's, yeah. I feel like you've inspired me. I think I'm going to take up knitting now. I don't okay, care I, if it's I strongly gay. support it. If you want, I'll teach you to crochet. Really? Yes. That is, I'm making an on-record commitment. <laughs> Amazing. Yes, I'll take that up. I have a funny story about crocheting, but I'm telling it afterwards because it's inappropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Can't wait. <laughs> <laughs> okay. In that case, I think all that's left to say is, Jessica, thank you so much for your time. Thanks it's been a me. real pleasure to meet you and hear more about your research. Yeah, it's been great. Thank you. Thank you very much, Georgia, for being amazing as always. Uh, right back at you. Thank you for excellent hosting. And as always, thank you for listening to Not Safe for Publication. And don't tell your supervisor what you heard here. What happens on the podcast stays in the podcast. Not Safe for Publication is a new podcast about the lighter side of humanities research at the University of Manchester. If you're a humanities researcher who has something funny to share, please be in touch with us at nsfppodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter at NSFP Podcast. Have an adequately happy existence.